Another slow start sinks the Canucks in New Jersey. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drantz, also does fantastic work covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. Hit us up, 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. And Drancer, how quickly things change. How quickly things can change when you are talking about the Vancouver Canucks. Yesterday on the show, all optimism, baby. The playoff chase was back on. Sorry, sorry. You and I were raving about how well they played in New York. Tell the truth to the audience, though. I wasn't that optimistic. No, but even... (laughs) Here, how about this? Relative to your baseline? Yeah, I checked. Even you had to say... I had my doubts about, okay, should yeah. I reevaluate where I'm thinking on this team? I went and you checked know? and decided that I still believed what I believed. But yes, you're right. And even, I said, and I stand by it, it was, you know, I wasn't making this up. It was how I legitimately felt. I said on the show yesterday that after the win in New York, the playoff dream felt more real for me than it had all season for this Vancouver Canucks team because of other things happening in the standings and because of how they had performed We're going to do this recently. every result. Well, here's the thing, though. We're going to do this every result for another two weeks, and at the end of the day, the Canucks still aren't going to make the playoffs. And if this organization can't make a decision on their long-term future without falling into the same cycle that fans and media do, we're in trouble. And here's the thing. That's the bottom line, right? I, as much as I was kind of you know, more optimistic yesterday. I also, it was actually exactly a week ago today that I came on the show and basically said, no performance this team is turns in is going to surprise me. <laughs> right. And I actually, That's th- a good take. the good results take. since then have borne that out pretty well because <laughs> they blow out the, the red hot Calgary Flames 7-1. Yep. They have an extremely convincing road win against the New York Rangers and win 5-2. And then they followed it up with what we saw last night where they lay an egg in New Jersey and get blown out 7-2. And here's the thing. I think... Again, I'm going to reiterate that point. Okay, they had another really bad game. I'm not going to be surprised if they wrap up this road trip with two wins, right? That if they go and have a really good bounce-back performance against the Islanders and then Demko steals a win in Toronto, that's not going to necessarily surprise me either because I think what we're seeing here is inconsistency is just part of the fabric of this team. And... In particular, when you have a team like the Canucks that is reliant on kind of the percentages, right? Shooting percentages from their star players who have that elite finishing talent and save percentages from their goaltending, which, I mean, we'll get into the Yarrow Halak conversation, but generally their goaltending has been very, very strong this year. That's great. You can win games. You can have games where you look like world beaters like they did against the Flames, but you're also going to have games where the percentages kind of desert you and it looks like what we saw last night against the New Jersey Devils. So I think it's just kind of baked in at this point. We're going to see weird, funky results out of this Canucks team. So I agree with you. We are. Right now, though, it's on sort of steroids, as it were. The the fact uh, of the weird results and the blowouts both ways. So we've been talking a lot about how the Canucks shooting percentage was bound to regress, but so was their save percentage. And the reaction to that all the time is, well, what about Thatcher Demko? Thatcher Demko is going to defy gravity by the percentages. Look how good he is. And there's some merit to that, right? Like the teams that have the best goaltenders, they don't regress to 100 in terms of combined save percentage and, and shooting percentage the way an average a team with average goaltending does. They can sustain a 102 
or a 103. The Canucks used to do it with Roberto Luongo. Roberto Luongo was like clockwork, a 920, 925 goaltender, 5-on-5 every year. And that allowed the Canucks to post consistently a PDO well north of of 100. Um, This team may have that in their future, but at the moment anyway... Their save percentage was inflated, not just because Demko was performing the way he was performing, but also because Halak was performing the way he was performing. Also because Spencer Martin gave them a run of four outrageously good games, 950 save percentage games. Every bit as good as Demko quality games from Spencer Martin, including a lopsided Canucks victory in Winnipeg that kind of like that Rangers game the other day wasn't as lopsided as the scoreline made it look. They even got a really good performance from Michael DiPietro. Well, what we've seen over the last 10 games, finally, for, for basically the first time this season, is the Canucks have dipped under 900 in terms of their 5-on-5 save percentage dating back 10 games. And, and the good news there is that they've still managed to carve out a fair number of points over the course of that stretch, which, you know, you like to see that, actually. You like to see a team sustain it. Unfortunately, the reason they've been getting those results isn't that they're controlling play effectively. It's that they're converting on 11% of their shots. So this offense that was dormant all season is suddenly... Hopping, converting off the rush, all their one-shot scorers, all at once, random distribution, just sort of finding the back of the net constantly, time and time again. And it's not just their best players, it's Yuho Lamico, deft tips, it's Tyler Myers, dead-eye shooting on the rush for his first goal of the year. Um, You know, you go down the list, there have been a lot of favorable offensive bounces, and yes, to some extent too, that's a result of some of their best players, and some of their best players are percentage drivers, Elias Pettersson in particular, finding a groove. All of a sudden, though, Jamie, what we're kind of left with is this Canucks team that more closely approximates the team we expected to see coming in, right? Which is a team that's going to surrender a lot, but a team that's going to score. Finally, finally, it took 50 games, but finally we're sort of seeing (laughs) this high event, interesting Canucks team. um, and, And I do sort of think with their personnel, playing a higher tempo game, relying on your goaltending advantage and your finishing advantage probably is their best path. But in the process of of creating this sort of run of results, the last 10 games have seen the club's defensive play stagnate. Like, this team's played pretty good defense, especially 5-on-5, throughout the course of the season. Now, some of the, the, like, goals against numbers make them look like an elite defense. They're not that. Um, That's largely a product of Thatcher Demko. But they've certainly been far less permissive, in fact, defensively, uh, this season than they have in the previous two. Some of the club's defensive improvements did legitimately work. All of a sudden, the last 10 games, we are seeing one of the NHL's most permissive five-on-five defensive teams. And you can see it even in their wins. Like, you you can see it in that Toronto game. You certainly saw it in that Anaheim game. You definitely saw it against the Devils, but you also saw it against the Rangers, right? Where even though the Canucks were dictating the flow of play and controlling that game and beat the Rangers, for me, a team-level win, um, not just a product Demko, they also surrendered... A bucket load. Demko also had to be really good. five alarm chance. Yeah, some great A saves. Great A saves, constantly. And so, you know, I, I think the defensive flaws, if that trend's not reversed pretty quickly, are going to be very, very difficult to overcome. And not, you know, Thatcher Demko might be able to patch over it sometimes, but not every game. Not every game are you going to be able to do what Demko did to the Rangers um, or the Leafs. Eventually, a team like Anaheim or San Jose or New Jersey breaks through and starts to finish those chances, right? I mean, that's just, 
you're playing with fire if you're giving up chances at the rate that the Canucks are. And the Canucks are not, over the last 10 games, generating the way they're surrendering chances either. So as good as their finishers are, you can't outshoot it and you can't trust your goaltenders to survive under that type of siege um, on, a, on an every game basis. And, and more than that, it also makes the games that Demko can't play, because Demko can't play every game between now and the end of the year. But it does make those games, too, a lot different than the types of games that we saw Spencer Martin and Mike DiPietro play in behind a lower event team, a team that was, you know, surrendering far fewer chances. This sort of comes back, too, to one of the things that I was always a little bit conscious of, skeptical of, as the team just reeled off this elite win percentage under Boudreaux, a win percentage that I don't think they'll sustain over the balance of the season, and I've been pretty consistent about that. It's leaned on Myers and Oliver ekman Larson playing at a level as a top pair that I just don't see them being able to sustain on a true talent basis over 50 or 60 games. And that's not to say that they're not both very good players who've played very well. It's just that the last 30 games, what they've accomplished is outrageously good. And I think that it, that level's likely to come back to earth over the course of the balance of the season. And, and if it does, and if we see more games that look like last night, um, you know, I think that's going to be uh, make for some difficult sledding for this Canucks and, team in the playoffs. And when you talk about kind of, okay, this Canucks team looking more like a, what a lot of us predicted it would coming into the season, and certainly I was in that group where you're saying, okay, they might have to win a lot of games 5-4 because Thatcher Demko is exceptional because they have the finishing talent, but there's questions on the defense. I think the two things that have really contributed to that are, one, Elias Pettersson getting back to Elias Pettersson, right, and really driving offense at 5-on-5, five five, converting on the power play. He's helped... Uh, you know, prop up their offensive results a lot. But then the flip side of it is we're starting to see games from Oliver Ekman, Larson, and Tyler Myers like we saw last night. And that was a really, you know, there's kind of an exclamation point on it, put on it last night, right? With the turnovers that led directly to goals from those, those two players. But that is kind of a glimpse into what the Canucks' future could look like if those players regress. Because all of a sudden you go from having... You know, I'm not going to say it was an elite shutdown pair or anything like that, but a really dependable, reliable shutdown pair that's getting you really good defensive the, the results. The results every were night. not far off elite, right? Yeah, like they weren't, and and that's why if they even just return to baseline competent, the fall is really significant, right? I mean, and that's not that's not even a slam on them. That's that's praise for just how good they've been. But that level, I do think, is is probably a notch beyond what certainly you can reasonably expect. Uh, from those two players. And just to to kind of put it in perspective, we're talking about the the high variance the Canucks have seen in recent games. In eight of their last nine games, one of the two teams has scored at least five goals. Bet the over. Yeah. And the only game that wasn't true was the tr- the win against the Leafs, which was 3-2, but th- that's because Thatcher Demko turned in a miraculous performance. They were under siege. That easily <laughs> yeah. could have been a 5-6-2 game if, if T- Thatcher a Demko... 7, a 10-7 yeah, exactly, barn burner. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it easily could have been that. So, yeah, no, and it's going to be interesting to see, like, the Canucks are now going in against this New York Islanders team, because you say you wouldn't be surprised to see them win the next two, and I agree with you. I mean, it could very well happen, but one thing to keep in mind is the Islanders now have their... They, they, the form that they were in prior to coming to Vancouver, because I was singing their praises as being back to the Islanders team that we expected, that's fallen off, really. Like, they beat Vancouver, and then they've played really poorly, uh, despite stomping the Ducks 4 nothing uh, this week. They really haven't been as good over the past two weeks as they were coming into the last time the Canucks played them. But they do have their full complement of defenders. Right, So they do have Ryan Pulock, they do have Scott Mayfield, they do have Adam Pellick, my favorite shutdown guy in the league, and they do have um, 
um, what's his first name? I want to call him Devin, but it's not. It's Dobson. What's Dobson's Noah. first name? Noah. Noah Dobson. So the, I don't know why I wanted to call him something else. Devin Taves was on my mind. But Noah Dobson's a really good puck mover. Noah Dobson's a lot of fun to watch. So that's a team that profiles more like the Devils for me in that the Canucks forecheck is not for sure going to bog them down the way that it, it can against some of those slower-moving defense cores. I think the Islanders are a tough matchup for Vancouver. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see how they fare. And then Toronto, uh, you know, similarly, I, I think Toronto, we, we all know what Toronto can do. We know what Mitch Marner can do. We know what Austin Matthews can do. Austin Matthews, Austin Matthews neck and neck with, you know, Shesterkin and, and McDavid, in in hard trophy race for me right like it's a really closely bunched group he's having that type of season um that team can also get moving that team can also get moving so i do think the canucks now have a run of games against teams that profile like the type of teams that can give them a tough time and i know people are looking at the schedule and being like montreal and fair enough montreal is a different story but but uh you know buffalo that's a fast team right New Jersey, that's a fast team. Um, the Islanders, they can transition effectively. The Leafs, that's a fast team. There's a lot of teams coming up on the schedule where even if they are well below the Canucks in the standings, profile like the types of teams that have given the Canucks a tough time. And, and increasingly, I wonder how much, how determinative, how determinative that seems to be in deciding these Canucks games, more, more so than almost any other factor. It's, it's not like quality. It's like if you have speed, it seems like you're able to to get to this team and if you're if you're sort of um a heavier team this team seems to be able to do damage against you it's like um it's almost like a rock paper yes. scissors and the canucks are you know dynamite yeah <laughs> matchups make fights kind of thing right, right. And it, the interesting thing with the canucks and the speed matchup is it it affects them on both ends because as you said they're when the other team has the mobility uh, and the puck moving ability to be fair on the back end it really prevents the Canucks forecheck from being as effective as it can be which we saw in the New York Rangers game right the forecheck can be really really effective at hemming teams in and then you also see it when the other team is attacking the Canucks blue line right like yeah. they have a speed gap in both areas that really stands out against teams that have that speed all throughout the lineup but and i think though part of it like i do think the central part of it is that if you are cutting the Canucks attack off at the base, right? If your speed is getting to the Canucks in their own end there and they can't forecheck against you that, I mean, this team's so reliant on turnovers and, and forechecking in general to feed their offense and feed their game. And I think faster teams completely neuter that. And when they do, the Canucks don't have an answer because they do not outside of Quinn Hughes have enough push from the back end. Yeah. And so that sort of goes into a big reason why I've been, um, you know, so, consistent about pointing out the flaws of this back end even when the club's defensive results were really good because they were coming at the expense of this of, of the offense and when we talk about poorly constructed this is kind of what we're talking about like the Canucks seem to be in addition to not having the personnel to kill penalties uh, they also seem to be relatively easy to to neuter a, as an overall attacking unit and I think the the base of that flaw is found on the back end. Uh, we should talk about uh, the goaltending and Halak's performance last night specifically, because I know it was a big, big talking point, certainly on is the post-game show it second guessing, last night. Is it second-guessing coaching decision season already? Well, here's the thing. Are we gonna are we De- gonna start that's, that's, second guessing Canucks goaltending decision? We had oh, I know that's like never, come on that's never been done in this market, has it? <laughs> well, yeah, and but also like I think these guys know what they're doing. Do you remember 
every when it was Luongo and Schneider, and whenever either one of them started, and it was they a let huge in a story. goal. They let in a goal, and it was immediately oh, the other guy would have saved that one. I think. Uh, no, I know. His, his style would have really allowed him to save that goal. Like, well, people were like <laughs> Team Corey. Yeah, it, it became like a Tiger Beat thing. It was really funny. <laughs> I was. Those were good times. But here's the thing: Can and, you imagine how spoiled you have to be to get really worked up? Like, oh, Luongo oh, and Schneider starting as they're, as they're winning the Jennings Trophy. Are you gonna and, start? Oh. I love yeah. this. Two guys. Top, I love this market. Top 10 in all-time and save percentage. I love this market, yeah, man. That was good. We will bellyache no matter how good we have it. Hey, it, that, that's that's what comes with a passionate hockey market. Indeed. It's, it's certainly more fun oh, I'm not way. criticizing. Certainly more fun uh, this way. But we did have a text coming in saying, you know, Demko should have got the start last night. Uh, you can't win when, you, when your goalie's giving you that kind of performance. And I don't know. Okay. It got really ugly for Yaro Halak. But I also look at the the three goals in the first period. I don't know that there's one that I look at and say, wow, that's an embarrassing goal to let in for Yaroslav Halak, right? Like, the, the Boakvist one that made it 4-1, that's tough. The 6-1 before he gets pulled, that one's really tough. But early in the game, <laughs> they gave up 17 scoring chances in the, the first thing, period. Right? Like, I, I don't – that's just kind of what <laughs> a backup goalie is going to do for you, right? Like, you he's to. not Thatcher Demko. You can't expect him to be Thatcher Demko, and Thatcher Demko is not going to play every game. So you have to play him – and I know people will say, well, hey, they're trying to make the playoffs. You know, you got to get Thatcher Demko, ride him while he's hot. To me, one, I mean, we know the, the research about playing your goalie in back-to-back games and the performance, that the performance drop-off that can cause is pretty strong. For me, it's also, why are you risking uh, injuring Thatcher Demko by, by doing that down the stretch and in a long season. shot playoff push? Yeah, exactly. It completely wipes out your season. So you're going to have to play your first year. This is the first year he's ever been a workhorse starter. You know, like, this is year one of spend seven months of your year playing every second day. And, like, the position of goaltender is really hard. Braden Holtby used to lose eight pounds of liquid every start. Right? Like, I used to, in a PR role, if a goalie was going the next night, right? So, guy starts, and it's the first leg of a back-to-back. And if I thought the goalie was going to play the next night, if I thought there was a chance... First thing I do when I go to open the room is I go to the goalie and say, are you going on drip? By which I mean, are you going on an IV right now so that you replenish and are ready to go tomorrow? Like, that's the demands we're talking about, people, right? This is not playing back-to-back games as a skater. This is 60 minutes, you know, as many as 50 to 70 different setups or shot attempt motions, right? Every shot attempt is like an athletic moment for a goaltender, uh, an acrobatic moment for a goaltender, especially when you consider the stress on the hips, the knees, the joints. Um, playing back-to-back requires a lot. Requires a lot. Goalies love to do it. Especially guys like Demko, who are just raw competitors. You know, I'm sure he'd, I'm sure he'd have loved to play last night. But in your first time, first season, living this lifestyle, like, you're, you're living a lifestyle. I, I do think that playing goal in the NHL, it's like catcher in baseball. There's, like, a couple of positions in sports where it's more like a vocation, <laughs> you know, like, a, than a sport. There's a unique rhythm to it. There's a unique but, rhythm yeah. to it. And that's also why I think guys get better later in their careers, right? Like, goalies, goalies have a longer um, sort of runway to their prime, right? You, it's not unusual to see a goalie still be extraordinary at 35, um, it's just a totally like it's it's about managing your body. It's a totally different type of of thing that goalies do. I don't think you start Thatcher Demko back to back. I don't have a ton of time for the second guessing on it. We also don't know 
what the Canucks are doing behind the scenes to manage the relationship with Yarrow, right? Uh, in terms of the no trade nor no move clause, in terms of the bonus, like this was a really complicated decision, even beyond the hockey reasons. Um, I don't have a problem. Halak's also been really good this year. He had one bad start. Like you can't be treating him like he's going to blow up before he's blown up twice. He'd had one bad game going into the season, um, or one really bad game going anyway. into the start. Yeah. Going into the start. Excuse me. Um, and uh, and so you know, I don't, I don't, I don't understand it. Like I don't understand the big debate on it. I, well, I really don't see the other side. I don't see why you would have played Demko. And this is always like boring sports talk radio, but. You know, to be like, I, I'll give the benefit of the doubt to the coaching staff. But with Ian Clark and goalies, that's the one thing where it's my my default is always going to be, you know what? Ian Clark has earned, more than earned, the benefit of the doubt on how he manages his goalie, right? That That's just the long and the short of it. And especially if you are going outside of the box, right, outside of conventional wisdom now with goalies about playing back-to-backs, and you're going to start your goalie in a back-to-back situation – you better have a really, really good reason. And I don't think Yaro Halak had a bad game in his last start is a good enough reason to justify that. Right? Right. Like, you have to have a really, really persuasive, unique circumstance in order to go that direction. And I just, again, you, you got to play your backup goalie at some point. 100%. Uh, the one thing I do wonder now is, like, the Canucks have had two veteran goalies, veteran backups in back-to-back seasons, neither of whom really worked. Nope. So I do think there's some you know, reasonable skepticism to now apply in terms of what's going on with this club that usually nails their their goaltending, um, you know, their their overall management of goalies, right? They, their succession plans, their, their player development, like they've been top of the league for 10 years in this area. And yet, in terms of identifying backups, they've invested a lot of money, a lot of cap space, and in back-to-back years have failed to find a guy who, you know, just gives you 9-10 and isn't very dramatic about it. Uh, and at this point, too, the, the other impact of last night's game is Halak has an additional bonus for a 9.05 save percentage. That's going to be really hard to get now. Uh, I think he needs to stop 115 of his next 120. It's really going to take, like, four quality starts to get back to uh, 9.05. So, um, you know, th- that, was a, that was a start that cost the Canucks a lot of money, but also potentially one that yeah, cost Halak a, a fair bit. Got a little bit of a cash back discount there yeah. uh, because of, because of How New the Jersey way it went. Punished and, Vancouver, yeah. And, and the other thing I'll say is it's easy to look at it and say, okay, that would never happen with Thatcher Demko in net, but we're not that far removed from, you know, Thatcher Demko getting lit up against the Ducks. And I'm not blaming Demko on that, but the point is more – this team is going to turn in some of those performances where even one of the best goalies in the NHL, Thatcher Demko, is going to end up giving a bunch uh, they're, of goals. They're going to they're wear him out. If, the, if, you're, if you're riding him and playing defense like this, like you're not putting him in a position to succeed. So, um, you know, he's got to have some nights off. You've got you've to be able to find some backup goaltending that can win you a few games. At least you're probably going to need three or four wins from a backup down the stretch, whether that's Halak or someone else. Um, the Halak situation has now gotten significantly more complicated because of his form. And, you know, this team really needs to play better defense in front of either starter because they're either going to wear out Demko or um, really struggle in the games where he's not in net uh, if they're surrendering chances the way they did against the Devils yesterday. Uh, Marcus and Gibson says, Thomas, to your point, they did give up 17 scoring chances in the first. That's an improvement for us. Demko just hides it all, usually. <laughs> <laughs> I, wonder, I don't know if I'd call it an did, improvement. Did but... you see the meme of the of the guy with the sticker? 
Yes, that was yeah, so yes. Good. That just here, Demko. That solves everything. That. It's, it's the it. magical solution to all of your defensive woes. Uh, quickly, before we move on from the goaltending, just because the name is coming up a lot, a lot of people saying, hey, bring up Spencer Martin, have him be the backup, uh, somebody else here. Uh, this one's from Kai in Coquitlam says, the Nux should have uh, Spencer Martin with the team, have him be the one who backs up Halak so that Demko can sit in the press box to actually give him a rest. And I just think... One, as you said, first of all, managing the relationship with Yarrow Halak. Second of all, of course, Yarrow Halak has a no-movement clause, so it's not as if you can send him to the AHL and bring up Spencer Martin. And then, as you said, do you necessarily want – not that Spencer Martin is a prospect in the traditional sense, but do you necessarily want to be kind of upending what you have going on in Abbotsford with your goalies to play a relatively young goalie who – who knows? He could be something for you down the road – behind this defense so I I understand look Spencer Martin was fantastic when he came up to the NHL it was a great story I get it but I also just don't see a realistic pragmatic path forward where he's a part of the solution unless unless there is a a, a Yarrow Halak trade before the deadline which to or me, you just carry three goalies I mean do you see them doing that though you could do it at home super easily because you can just call the guy up for the game and send him down I mean you know, probably want to have an extension in place with the guy before you start doing that because you're really messing with their yes. NHL earnings for this year. So from a relationship management perspective, you lock him up. Um, you lock him up to like a high one, high high uh, two way or a one way deal. Um, so you're not guaranteeing that he's the backup necessarily, but you're like, hey, you know, you can earn 800k to play in Abbotsford, but you'll compete for this spot. And then, and then you could do that maybe, but I think you'd have to be really careful because you're you're effectively like denying a guy an NHL paycheck on practice days. Um, I don't know, I don't know. You ha- you have to be really careful about doing those sorts of things. But there's a, there's a world in which that makes sense. So possibility. So all of the people texting in Spencer Martin in all caps. There you go. There's a world where it could make where sense. Where it could make sense. Where but it, it re- would require sense. some delicacy, I think, yes. and some significant relationship it, management. It's not as simple as Spencer Martin has outperformed Yara Halak, so bring him although, up. Although you'd in. be killing your leverage, too, in, in any Halak. I mean, the Halak... The Hallock trade was always pie in the sky. It, it really, and at this point, it feels even more so now. Uh, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, so we'll we'll see. It, it, my my stance on the Hallock trade has been until we get solid reporting that Yara Hallock has said I'm waving my new, I, I'm willing to waive my no movement clause, and we have solid reporting that yeah, know, teams X, Y, and Z are interested. Until we have that, it's it's speculation well, more and than anything else. Just the last thing is, you know, in so many ways, this team has pushed so many chips into the middle on this season, right? And so every high point that this team has, the 7-1 win over Calgary in retro jerseys, you know? Um, I get lots of people, um, you know, having fun at my expense, and fair enough, you you do you as a fan, right? But sort of being like, look, this team is way better than you say. Look at look at how well they've done under Boudreaux. Um, and every game like that, one thing I try and remind myself of is, you know, that's why they're all in, right? Like, they're all in. And that's that might be the high point of the season, right? And v- vice versa, when they lose to New Jersey and put in a performance like that, I think it's important to remember, like, this team is all in on this, too. They're all in on this team. And so when I am calling for dramatic changes and, and, a, and a wide-angle view toward the future, it's with that understanding that if you're going to be all in and if this franchise is going to be all in and if this market is going to be all in, I-, I want an awful lot better than what we've seen from this team over 54 games. Uh, lots more coming up on the other side. Reminder, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner 
or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Don't forget as well to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Another slow start for the Canucks. It had Bruce Boudreaux scratching his head. We'll talk about that and more. Read some of your texts as well. It's the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. No performance this team is turns in is going to surprise me. <laughs> right. We're going to see weird, funky results out of this Canucks team. Welcome back. Canucks Hour, final half hour of the show here. Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strance with you. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, and Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And, you know, Drancer, obviously the uh, the Yarrow Halak start got a lot of the attention last night, but, you know, as, as I kind of said Earlier, and, and you said, look, they gave up 17 scoring chances in the first period, and I don't really put any of those three first period goals solely, at least, on Yaro Halak. I mean, it was another it was another bad opening 20 minutes for the Canucks, and that's something, even in games they've ended up winning, we've seen relatively frequently recently in the game. we haven't the seen game. them do it enough. This team goes down, and they stay down. Yes. Or this team goes up, and they keep going up. But it doesn't feel like they're able to catch a bad start self-correct in-game. And, you know, Jim Benning referred to this as an immature team, you'll recall, in his last media availability. Um, Boudreaux has on occasion sounded very frustrated about the starts. As he did last night, again. The professionalism. Patrick Alvin talked about the practice habits with Ian McIntyre last week. Um, Bradshaw was on our station talking about building the right habits, right? Like, it's been a theme consistently from decision-makers in the organization. Across coaches, right? And and so, you know, I think that's another thing you have to keep in mind when deciding what to do ahead of the deadline, right? Like, so many decision-makers have worked with this group of players and seemed frustrated by a certain je ne sais quoi, a certain intangible quality that they seem to lack. And... Is that the team you're going to be all in on? Is that the team you're going to stay all in on? Or or is it a team where you need to course correct? Uh, I mean, doesn't seem as complicated as I feel like the chatter around this team makes it seem, right? It feels like you're like, we're wading through thickets of like, but playoff revenue is important after the pandemic. But, you know, can, what? how will the room respond? But how will, and then and then there's all these facts sort of staring us in the face, which is, the team's low chances of making the playoffs down to 8% today per Dom Lecision's model, uh, which I have to mention per my athletic contract, by the way, in case anyone's wondering. Um, <laughs> but the <laughs> – yeah, there we go. Thank you. Uh, but the – you know, that fact, the fact of how this team has played, right? And that, that to me is such an important part. I, I get told so often that I'm leaning on spreadsheets, but I don't think you need to to even look at this stretch of seven games where they've won five of seven. They've won five of seven. Yesterday they had this market a buzz about how realistic the playoff race was. Even even the more circumspect analysts like like Jamie Dodd and myself. Oh, yeah. And yet when you go back, you see that Leafs game and you see a team that got roundly outplayed 
and was opportunistic. You see that Sharks game. Where the Ducks the team, game. You see the Ducks game. this big game against the divisional totally. rival. It was a no-show. And, and then you see, yeah, Seattle. I like Seattle. You see Calgary. I like Calgary. Uh, you see that Rangers game. They gave up too much, but they did play well. I thought they beat the Rangers. And then you see that Devils game. And it's, you know, even though it's a 5-2 and two stretch, isn't it hard to really place a bet on that team, on that group, on that run of results? And that's sort of the Canucks at their best, you know, since the calendar flipped to 2022. Like, that's the best stretch this team has had. And I still think that leaves something to be desired. Not, not results-wise. Five of seven is beautiful. You take that every time. But from a objective assessment of what this team is and what you can count on them accomplishing down the stretch, I don't think it's an, a confidence-inspiring stretch for this club. Well, and when the, the two... Is that unreasonable? When, well, here's the th- what I'll say to that. When the two and the five and two are really ugly, they're going. it's going to look different and feel different than a normal five and two stretch, right? It's, right. it's going to feel different, even though the highs were high, when the lows are that low... You know, it's it's different than hey, we went five and two, and the two losses were you know three two and uh, two and three one with an empty netter against us, right? Mm-hmm. And oh, we got stoned by a really hot goalie in that one game. What are you going to do? That feels a lot different than we're in this stretch where we're getting good results, but we've had these kind of two instances to really confirm, hey, we are back in the playoff race. This is serious against Anaheim and against New Jersey, and it's been a no-show both times. And as much as you want to place blame on Yarrow Halak last night, again, Thatcher Demko got the start in the Anaheim game, and it didn't go well, right? So it's been with both goalies in net. And I think, again, those are going to weigh more heavily in your kind of evaluation process than just normal run-of-the-mill losses are. And just on that kind of point, right, where it, it's not just losses, but it's slow starts and it's not showing up in these quote-unquote big games. My kind of instinct, whenever we're looking for explanations in sports, like, hey, why is the team performing like this? Why is this consistently happening? I always kind of default to discounting the intangible explanation unless there's really overwhelming persuasive evidence for it, right? Because we're always so quick to say, oh, this team just doesn't have enough heart. They don't have enough gumption. And that's why they're starting these games slow. Usually, I think it's more about either randomness or talent or whatever. And I think, obviously, some of that plays into it here, too. But as you said, it's not as if there's one coach or one GM coming out and saying, man, this is a real problem. And it's the it's a mindset problem for this team that needs to change. That is something that has been said multiple times by different regimes over and over and over again. And it does... And by the players themselves, by the way. Yeah. Right? In in crucial moments of the season, right? Like one of the defining images of the end of the Green Benning era is is the JT Miller response to um is everyone buying in, right? I mean that was that that statement occurred or that exchange occurred on a Tuesday and by the weekend Francesco Aquilini was in rally to meet with Jim Rutherford. I mean, you know, it's not hard to draw a relatively straight line there. Um after the game against Anaheim you know, the the Winnie the Pooh quote from Bruce Boudreaux, which was inspired by Horvat and Pearson talking about the club's sort of struggles to turn the tide when things get going against them. Um, you know, it's uh, it's impossible to ignore. It's impossible for me to ignore anyway. And I'm curious to see what we see down the stretch because for all of that, this team has still, you know, won at an extraordinary rate under Boudreaux. Uh, they have a relatively favorable stretch coming up before the deadline. 
Uh, they have an organization that never likes to sell when there's even a you know snowball's chance in the sauna of um, making the playoffs. So you know it's not as straightforward as it as it might feel like in this discussion, but I kind of think it should be. Well, and even looking beyond this year, right? And and look, Drancer, you and I tend to really dig into kind of the nitty gritty, right? The salary cap machinations that have to happen for this team, where they need to add on the roster, you know, what needs to improve in their puck possession game, all of that. And that's all true. But as much as it does kind of seem like this, you know, kind of airy-fairy, intangible, ephemeral thing, that immaturity and those habits, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want, whatever handle you want to put on what multiple coaches have seen lacking in the mindset of this group, as much as all of the on-ice stuff has to improve, if they're going to get to where they want to go, that has to change too. And it's almost... You know, it's really easy to say, okay, we're going to improve our defense by trading for player X, who's a good defender on a good deal. And our scouts identified him, and we think he works in our system, and we're going to plug him in, and he's going to improve our defensive results. The question of how to change, how to make your team go from immature to mature, I think that's in some ways a much more difficult and thornier question. We have this text coming in from Tony from Poco, says this team needs to learn professionalism. Naslin credits Messier with teaching them how to become a professional. The Sedins and others on the 2011 era uh, credit Sandine for teaching them to be professionals. If these Canucks need to mature, maybe they need to sign someone like Chara next year. It seems to be the formula for success. But we've been down that road. Right? Like, that was why Jay Beagle was signed. No, no, in no. Part. We haven't been through down that road. Jay Beagle is not Matt Sundin. No, 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 no. But I'm... Well, you know what I'm saying, though? Look, like, if, if Matt Sund... But is there going to be a player like that who has that weight that can come in and do well, that? Well, no, I mean, it's hard to find guys with that weight. But, you know, I think one guy who probably had it, although a, a different type of guy, but you have to play at the top of the lineup. If you're not playing at the top of the lineup, yes. you can't have that weight in terms of being a voice in the room that holds people accountable. You can't come in and be a fourth line player and teach everyone how to be top of the lineup, first lineup players and carry the weight of the franchise. One of the tragedies, I think, of the end of the Benning era is that this club overspent on so much veteran leadership that they couldn't afford the real veteran leader in Chris Tanev, right? That was, I think, one of the, um, you know, that's one of the sad sort of ironies of the end of the Benning era. Uh, Losing Alex Edler, you know, I mean, if you want to talk about what this team had in terms of a of um, the the culture of learning from Sundin, like Edler is part of that group. Edler goes so far back that he was part of that group. This is the first season flying without a player who had that type of weight and was still a top of the lineup player for this team. Um, Sundin and Demetra, you know, those were top of the lineup guys. They were top six guys. Um, you know, Kessler didn't even feel like he was a top six player until he played with them and saw how hard they worked, saw how hard they worked on their skills, did things that made his eyes open in terms of where he had to get to as a shooter. Um, the the impact of, of those types of players, um, or, or a Messier who's got multiple cups um, and, you know, a leadership award named after him and a, a Lay's sponsorship and, um, <laughs> you know, a trail of burned bridges throughout the city of Vancouver. Um, I just love the the image of Mark Messier in the Canucks dressing room, you know, with a bag of lace, saying to Marcus Naslin, "Listen, you want this kind of deal? Just watch, watch, <laughs> watch how I handle myself, Nazzy, All right. So, you know, I think the I think there's a huge gap between the story of Messier and Sundin in the twilight of their careers in Vancouver versus the story of Jay Beagle 
You know, I, and, you know, Jay Beagle's a likable character. I think he did his best for this organization. I advocated for him getting a warm reception when he returned to Vancouver. I think that was uh, due to him. But, you know, Demetra and Sundin, he is not. It just no. is what it is. But I think that's what often happens when you decide we're going to dip into free agency to acquire leadership. It's more likely that you get the Jay Beagle experience than you get the Matt Sundin yeah. experience. Right? Totally. And, and ultimately, that's you a really... You have to be good at evaluating character. Yes. And that's a, just a... Well, that's one thing That's one thing that the Benning Arrow, you know... That's one thing that the Benning Arrow I don't think was particularly good at. I mean, one thing, one thing like... Let me, let me, let me, um, there's a lot of chatter because of how well Yuho Lamico's playing and the fact that Noah Juleson's become, um, you know, a, a person of interest anyway, organizational organizationally depth. speaking. Yeah, but organizational depth who I, I, I'd be interested in seeing play another handful of games. You know what I mean? Like more than, more than just a guy on this team now. He's a guy I'm kind of watching to see maybe can he put in another good summer, put in some more time between him and the injury, continue to play huge minutes in the AHL maybe make something out of himself. He's still young enough. Like, he's now something of interest to me. So there's been a lot of recasting of, like, well, the Yolevi uh, trade, the Lamico, for Yo, uh, the Lamico and Juleson for Yolevi trade was a huge win. And it was a good bit of problem solving for this franchise, all told, right? Because they were in a bind. They were going to use Yuho. The Panthers offered them a one-for-one for... Um, for Lamico, they held out. They also got Juleson. And uh, and I think that worked for them. But, but, the fact that they didn't have a third pair lefty who could help them kill penalties killed them. Killed them. Like, the fact that it was Hunt, Rathbone, or Yolevi, they were counting on Yolevi to come in and play and at least earn a role or at least be in shape. And he wasn't. And... At the end of the day, I think more than they needed a fourth-line center, they needed a penalty-killing lefty defenseman. They just needed a sturdy defensive guy. Yulevi couldn't be that guy for them. They didn't have a backup plan. They sort of missed on evaluating his character. They missed on whether or not he'd be reliable and in shape to begin this season. Uh, it hurt them. At the end of the day, that hurt them, even though they turned a loss into a win. I still think the fact that their most frequent third-pair lefties this season have been Hunt and... Um, and and Burroughs, um, you know, is an indictment. Like, it's an indictment of the preparation, especially considering how high leverage it turned out to be, that they couldn't kill penalties to save their lives at the start of the year. And and honestly, still, <laughs> they're, they still struggle in that area. Um, I think you go down the list, and evaluating character was a, was a pretty weak part of how this organization functioned for about a decade. I know that's old-school meat-and-potato stuff, but it's it's it does matter. It does matter. And I think the overpaying for veteran leaders, losing the guy who mattered more, um, you know, you go on down the list, there's just a litany of these. Um, and that's without getting into some of the other sort of more obvious ones. So I, I think the fact is, is that you do need to be really careful about who you bring in to do that type of thing. Could this organization need that type of veteran leadership? Uh, yeah, I mean, for sure. You saw, you saw even the impact that Toffoli had. When he came in, right? The respect that he earned. The way that he returned from that foot injury. Um, the respect that Tanner Pearson has as a guy who's been through it all. Um, as a guy who works that way and plays at the top of the lineup. You know, you, you can't understate how important it is to have those good people, but you have to overpay for the right ones if you're overpaying yes. for that in, in that area. And you, and you have to be 
really careful about limiting term and and making sure that it fits. So it, it's a dangerous game to play, but it can be played in in a way that you know can have long lasting and important positive implications for a club. And the Canucks, because of their salary cap situation, they're not in a position to go out and kind of do luxury spending like that, right? Like, no. oh hey, it would be nice. It would be nice to have. We'll go pick up and overpay a little this veteran guy who's won a couple of rings. Like they they're in a position where they have other much more concrete needs that they're trying to address as well. Uh, Brendan and Nanaimo says, if your team needs a 30-year-old to come in and set a winning culture, you have an incredibly immature team. Horvat and Miller should be able to set that winning culture, but can a guy who has never won be that guy? And I do think there's this, there's this push and pull of ultimately what you want is for your best young players to step up, to kind of shed that immaturity that, that Bruce Boudreau and others have talked about and become the leaders, the not just the best players, but the culture leaders on your team. Now, the question of how best to facilitate that process is an interesting one. And does it become easier if they have you know players like we're talking about coming in to kind of aid the process? Or in some cases, does that uh, inhibit the growth of them, right? If there's always this this you know, this cycle of veterans coming in who are trying to be the leaders in the room, does that actually prevent some of the young players from stepping up and claiming leadership roles? It's There's no one easy answer, but it's so critical to having it happen in the long term. I, the last thing I'll say on this is, First of all, we're so far removed from the room right now because of COVID restrictions that it's, sure. it's a harder discussion to have than it might be normally. Uh, but the second is, I saw a team up close that went from immature to self-coached, basically. <laughs> and I'm obviously talking about my Florida Panthers, yeah. uh, my Florida Panthers, uh, to go with my Leafs. Uh, but the, you know, that was a team that went through multiple coaches, needed better habits, same sort of thing, right? And then this season, they lose their coach in, in midseason because he's de facto expelled from the league and don't miss a beat. Yeah. Like now I, I think that it feels like that team just kind of runs itself. And that's a group that when they were 22, 23, had the same types of conversations around them. They grew up together. They figured it out. They're a buzzsaw now every night. Every night they're a threat. And so, you know, growth can happen internally. And growth can happen internally regardless of how functional the environment is, right? Because that's not, it's not like a lot was done correctly to bring those guys along. They figured it out. They wanted it. At the end of the day, that type of improvement, that type of cultural improvement, I do think that has to come, and the responsibility for it has to come from Vancouver's best players themselves, um, more than the organization. But I do think, I do think, in terms of how you spend your cap dollars, you know, you can't, and how you spend your draft picks, and how you do everything, uh, evaluating character is absolutely crucial, and it's something this organization does need to do a better job. And that internal improvement in this area might ultimately be kind of the only solution that the Canucks can hope for. And it's a very legitimate thing. It happens as you're detailing with the Florida Panthers. It's not a wish and a prayer kind of situation, right? Eventually your best players have to stake up, have, have to step up and, and develop into those types of leaders. Tanbeer says, I thought Hughes and Petey would set the culture, especially after Petey killed everyone in the bag skate. Again, we're not in the room, so we're not seeing what types of leaders those guys are those young players are i will say i read a lot into that bag skate too though i think that's a that's a very rare on point text from tanbeer i just got fired um i will say no, externally right, externally the fact that hughes and Patterson have both vocally talked about trying to fix areas where they struggle right hughes wanted to improve his defensive results 
wanted to be a bigger part of the penalty kill. We've heard Pedersen talk about needing to get better at faceoffs, about him wanting to be better on the penalty kill as well. Again, that's external, so we don't see how it plays in the room. We don't see what's happening in the room. But purely from an external perspective, those are the kinds of things you want to hear from your young players as they try to grow into that role. So is that sufficient? No. But is it at least... A sign of optimism if you're looking for it? Yes. For sure. The 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 gap that needs to be made though, like the thing that needs to the thing that needs to um the growth that I want to see, right? You, you think about that Jack Hughes quote before the season about Quinn Hughes's plus minus, right? If you're on a bad team, your plus minus is gonna be low. You think about Pedersen's comments in the summer about wanting to play for a contending team, right? The leap that I think it takes and the leap that I think Barkov made, for example, was, you know, beginning to understand that it doesn't matter it's on you just win that's sort of the leap from you know it's my environment it's this it's that no you're the best player on this team it's you it starts and ends with you and then everything sort of falls into place thereafter that's the leap that that i'm talking about that's the leap that i think barkov made in in florida um that's i think the leap that canucks fans need to hope for from their their best young players And it's still very, very possible. This is a process that a ton of incredibly good young players have gone through and come out on the other side as exactly what you're talking about. Uh, There's a reason I believe in those two young gentlemen and have sort of (laughs) been been consistent in that even when they've struggled either defensively or uh, in total, as Pedersen did this early this season. Like, I think those are special players and special young men, but I do think that next step from them is going to be crucial if this organization is going to get to where it needs to go. That will do it for us. Appreciate all the feedback in the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. We're back tomorrow at noon. Another edition of Canucks Hour coming your way. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast uh, and stick around. The People Show, Bick and Randeep. Yannick Hansen at 2 o'clock. You're not going to want to miss that. Uh, That's coming up next. The home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.